Volume One, Chapter Fifteen of the Marble Faun. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Lars Rolander. The Marble Faun by Nathaniel Hawthorne, Volume One, Chapter Fifteen, An Aesthetic Company. On the evening after Miriam's visit to Kenyon's studio, there was an assemblage composed almost entirely of Anglo-Saxons, and chiefly of American artists, with a sprinkling of their English brethren, and some few of the tourists who still lingered in Rome, now that Holy Week was past. Miriam, Hilda, and the sculptor were all three present, and with them Donatello, whose life was so far turned from Fitz's natural bent that, like a pet spaniel, he followed his beloved mistress wherever he could gain admittance. The place of meeting was in the palatial but somewhat faded and gloomy apartment of an eminent member of the aesthetic body. It was no more formal an occasion than one of those weekly receptions common among the foreign residents of Rome, at which pleasant people, or disagreeable ones, as the case may be, encounter one another with little ceremony. If anywise interested in art, a man must be difficult to please who cannot find fit companionship among a crowd of persons whose ideas and pursuits all tend towards the general purpose of enlarging the world's stock of beautiful productions. One of the chief causes that make Rome the favorite residence of artists, their ideal home which they sigh for in advance, and are so loath to migrate from, after one breathing its enchanted air, is doubtless that they there find themselves in force, and are numerous enough to create a congenial atmosphere. In every other clime they are isolated strangers, in this land of art they are free citizens. Not that individually, or in the mass, there appears to be any large stock of mutual affection among the brethren of the chisel and the pencil. On the contrary, it will impress the shrewd observer that the jealousies and pity animosities which the poets of our day have flung aside still irritate and gnaw into the hearts of this kindred class of imaginative men. It is not difficult to suggest reasons why this should be the fact. The public, in whose good grace lie the sculptor's or the painter's prospects of success, is infinitely smaller than the public to which literary men make their appeal. It is composed of a very limited body of wealthy patrons, and these, as the artist well knows, are but blind judges in matters that require the utmost delicacy of perception. Thus success in art is apt to become partly an affair of intrigue, and it is almost inevitable that even a gifted artist should look askance at his gifted brother's fame and be chary of the good word that might help him to sell still another statue or picture you seldom hear a painter heap generous praise on anything in his special line of art a sculptor never has a favorable eye for any marble but his own nevertheless in spite of all these professional grudges artists are conscious of a social warmth from each other's presence and contiguity they shiver at the remembrance of their lonely studios in the unsympathizing cities of their native land for the sake of such brotherhood as they can find 
more than for any good that they get from galleries they linger year after year in italy while their originality dies out of them or is polished away as a barbarism the company this evening included several men and women whom the world has heard of and many others beyond all question whom it ought to know it would be a pleasure to introduce them upon our humble pages name by name and had we confidence enough in our own taste to crown each well-deserving brow according to its deserts the opportunity is tempting but not easily manageable and far too perilous both in respect to those individuals whom we might bring forward and the far greater number that must needs be left in the shade ink moreover is apt to have a corrosive quality and might chance to raise a blister instead of any more agreeable titillation on skins so sensitive as those of artists we must therefore forego the delight of illuminating this chapter with personal allusions to men whose renown glows richly on canvas or gleams in the white moonlight of marble otherwise we might point to an artist who has studied nature with such tender love that she takes him to her intimacy enabling him to reproduce her in landscapes that seem the reality of a better earth and yet are but the truth of the very scenes around us observed by the painter's insight and interpreted for us by his skill by his magic the moon throws her light far out of the picture and the crimson of the summer night absolutely glimmers on the beholder's face or we might indicate a poet painter whose song has the vividness of picture and whose canvas is peopled with angels fairies and water sprites done to the ethereal life because he saw them face to face in his poetic mood or we might bow before an artist who has wrought too sincerely too religiously with too earnest a feeling and too delicate a touch for the world at once to recognize how much toil and thought are compressed into the stately brow of prospero and miranda's maiden loveliness or from what a depth within this painter's heart the angel is leading forth saint peter thus it would be easy to go on perpetrating a score of little epigrammatical allusions like the above all kindly meant but none of them quite hitting the mark and often striking where they were not aimed it may be allowable to say however that american art is much better represented at rome in the pictorial than in the sculpturesque department yet the men of marble appear to have more weight with the public than the men of canvas perhaps on account of the greater density and solid substance of the material in which they work and the sort of physical advantage which their labors thus acquire over the elusive unreality of color to be a sculptor seems a distinction in itself whereas a painter is nothing unless individually eminent one sculptor there was an englishman endowed with a beautiful fancy and possessing at his fingers ends the capability of doing beautiful things he was a quiet simple elderly personage with eyes brown and bright under a slightly impending brow and a grecian profile such as he might have cut with his own chisel 
He had spent his life for forty years in making Venuses, Cupids, Bacchuses, and a vast deal of other marble progeny of dream-work, or rather frost-work. It was all a vapory exhalation out of the Grecian mythology, crystallizing on the dull window-panes of today. Gifted with a more delicate power than any other man alive, he had foregone to be a Christian reality, and perverted himself into a pagan idealist, whose business, or efficiency, in our present world it would be exceedingly difficult to define. And loving and reverencing the pure material in which he wrought, as surely this admirable sculptor did, he had nevertheless robbed the marble of its chastity, by giving it an artificial warmth of you thus it became a sin and shame to look at his nude goddesses they had revealed themselves to his imagination no doubt with all their deity about them but bedaubed with buff colour they stood forth to the eyes of the profane in the guise of naked women but whatever criticism may be ventured on his style it was good to meet a man so modest and yet imbued with such thorough and simple conviction of his own right principles and practice and so quietly satisfied that his kind of antique achievement was all that sculpture could effect for modern life this eminent person's weight and authority among his artistic brethren were very evident for beginning unobtrusively to utter himself on a topic of art he was soon the centre of a little crowd of younger sculptors they drank in his wisdom as if it would serve all the purposes of original inspiration he meanwhile discoursing with gentle calmness as if there could possibly be no other side and offer ratifying as it were his own conclusions by a mildly emphatic yes the veteran sculptor's unsought audience was composed mostly of our own countrymen. It is fair to say that they were a body of very dexterous and capable artists, each of whom had probably given the delighted public a nude statue, or had won credit for even higher skill by the nice carving of buttonholes, shoe ties, coat seams, shirt bosoms, and other such graceful peculiarities of modern costume smart practical men they doubtless were and some of them far more than this but still not precisely what an uninitiated person looks for in a sculptor a sculptor indeed to meet the demands which our preconceptions make upon him should be even more indispensably a poet than those who deal in measured verse and rhyme his material or instrument which serves him in the stead of shifting and transitory language is a pure white undecaying substance it ensures immortality to whatever is wrought in it and therefore makes it a religious obligation to commit no idea to its mighty guardianship save such as may repay the marble for its faithful care its incorruptible fidelity by warming it with an ethereal life under this aspect marble assumes a sacred character and no man should dare to touch it unless he feels within himself a certain consecration and a priesthood the only evidence of which for the public eye will be the high treatment of heroic subjects 
or the delicate evolution of spiritual through material beauty no idea such as the foregoing no misgiving suggested by them probably troubled the self-complacency of most of these clever sculptors marble in their view had no such sanctity as we impute to it it was merely a sort of white limestone from carrara cut into convenient blocks and worth in that state about two or three dollars per pound and it was susceptible of being wrought into certain shapes by their own mechanical ingenuity or that of artisans in their employment which would enable them to sell it again at a much higher figure such men on the strength of some small knack in handling clay which might have been fitly employed in making waxwork are bold to call themselves sculptors how terrible should be the thought that the nude woman whom the modern artist patches together bit by bit from a dozen heterogeneous models meaning nothing by her shall last as long as the venus of the capital that his group of no matter what since it has no moral or intellectual existence will not physically crumble any sooner than the immortal agony of the lacocon yet we love the artists in every kind even these whose merits we are not quite able to appreciate sculptors painters crayon sketchers or whatever branch of aesthetics they adopted were certainly pleasanter people as we saw them that evening than the average whom we meet in ordinary society they were not fully confined within the sordid compass of practical life they had a pursuit which if followed faithfully out would lead them to the beautiful and always had a tendency thitherward even if they lingered to gather up golden dross by the wayside their actual business though they talked about it very much as other men talk of cotton politics floor-barrels and sugar necessarily illuminated their conversation with something akin to the ideal so when the guests collected themselves in little groups here and there in the wide saloon a cheerful and airy gossip began to be heard the atmosphere ceased to be precisely that of common life a hint mellow tinge such as we see in pictures mingled itself with the lamplight this good effect was assisted by many curious little treasures of art which the host had taken care to strew upon his tables they were principally such bits of antiquity as the soil of rome and its neighborhood are still rich in seals gems small figures of bronze medieval carvings in ivory things which had been obtained at little cost yet might have borne no inconsiderable value in the museum of a virtuoso as interesting as any of these relics was a large portfolio of old drawings some of which in the opinion of their possessor bore evidence on their faces of the touch of master hands very ragged and ill-conditioned they mostly were yellow with time and tattered with rough usage and in their best estate the designs had been scratched rudely with pen and ink on coarse paper or if drawn with charcoal or pencil were now half rubbed out you would not anywhere see rougher and homelier things than these 
but this hasty rudeness made the sketches only the more valuable because the artist seemed to have bestirred himself at the pinch of the moment snatching up whatever material was nearest so as to seize the first glimpse of an idea that might vanish in the twinkling of an eye and thus by the spell of a creased soiled and discolored scrap of paper you were enabled to steal close to an old master and watch him in the very effervescence of his genius according to the judgment of several connoisseurs raphael's own hand had communicated its magnetism to one of these sketches and if genuine it was evidently his first conception of a favorite madonna now hanging in the private apartment of the grand duke at florence another drawing was attributed to leonardo da vinci and appeared to be a somewhat varied design for his picture of modesty and vanity in the schiara palace there were at least half a dozen others to which the owner assigned as high an origin it was delightful to believe in their authenticity at all events for these things make the spectator more vividly sensible of a great painter's power than the final glow and perfected art of the most consummate picture that may have been elaborated from them there is an effluence of divinity in the first sketch and there if anywhere you find the pure light of inspiration which the subsequent toil of the artist serves to bring out in stronger lustre indeed but likewise adulterates it with what belongs to an inferior mood the aroma and fragrance of new thoughts were perceptible in these designs after three centuries of wear and tear the charm lay partly in their very imperfection for this is suggestive and sets the imagination at work whereas the finished picture if a good one leaves the spectator nothing to do and if bad confuses stupefies disenchants and disheartens him hilda was greatly interested in this rich portfolio she lingered so long over one particular sketch that miriam asked her what discovery she had made look at it carefully replied hilda putting the sketch into her hands if you take pains to disentangle the design from those pencil marks that seem to have been scrawled over it i think you will see something very curious it is a hopeless affair i am afraid said miriam i have neither your faith dear hilda nor your perceptive faculty fie what a blurred scrawl it is indeed the drawing had originally been very slight and had suffered more from time and hard usage than almost any other in the collection it appeared too that there had been an attempt perhaps by the very hand that drew it to obliterate the design by hilda's help however miriam pretty distinctly made out a winged figure with a drawn sword and a dragon or a demon prostrate at his feet i am convinced said hilda in a low reverential tone that guido's own touches are on that ancient scrap of paper if so it must be his original sketch for the picture of the archangel michael setting his foot upon the demon in the church of the cappuccini the composition and general arrangement of the sketch are the same with those of the picture the only difference being that the demon has a more upturned face 
and scolds vindictively at the archangel who turns away his eyes in painful disgust no wonder responded miriam the expression suits the daintiness of michael's character as guido represents him he never could have looked the demon in the face miriam exclaimed her friend reproachfully you grieve me and you know it by pretending to speak contemptuously of the most beautiful and the divinest figure that mortal painter ever drew forgive me hilda said miriam you take these matters more religiously than i can for my life guido's archangel is a fine picture of course but it never impressed me as it does you well we will not talk of that answered hilda what i wanted you to notice in this sketch is the face of the demon it is entirely unlike the demon of the finished picture guido you know always affirmed that the resemblance to cardinal pamphili was either casual or imaginary now here is the face as he first conceived it and a more energetic demon altogether than that of the finished picture said kenyon taking the sketch into his hand what a spirit is conveyed into the ugliness of this strong writhing squirming dragon under the archangel's foot neither is the face an impossible one upon my word i have seen it somewhere and on the shoulders of a living man and so have i said hilda it was what struck me from the first donatello look at this face cried kenyon the young italian as may be supposed took little interest in matters of art and seldom or never ventured an opinion respecting them after holding the sketch a single instant in his hand he flung it from him with a shudder of disgust and repugnance and a frown that had all the bitterness of hatred i know the face well whispered he it is miriam's model it was acknowledged both by kenyon and hilda that they had detected or fancied the resemblance which donatello so strongly affirmed and it added not a little to the grotesque and weird character which half playfully half seriously they assigned to miriam's attendant to think of him as personating the demon's part in a picture of more than two centuries ago had guido in his effort to imagine the outmost of sin and misery which his pencil could represent hit ideally upon just this face or was it an actual portrait of somebody that haunted the old master as miriam was haunted now did the ominous shadow follow him through all the sunshine of his earlier career and into the gloom that gathered about its close and when guido died did the spectre betake himself to those ancient sepulchres there awaiting a new victim till it was miriam's ill hap to encounter him i do not acknowledge the resemblance at all said miriam looking narrowly at the sketch and as i have drawn the face twenty times i think you will own that i am the best judge a discussion here arose in reference to guido's archangel and it was agreed that these four friends should visit the church of the cappuccini the next morning and critically examine the picture in question the similarity between it and the sketch being at all events a very curious circumstance it was now a little past ten o'clock 
when some of the company who had been standing in a balcony declared the moonlight to be resplendent they proposed a ramble through the streets taking in their way some of those scenes of ruin which produced their best effects under the splendor of the italian moon End of chapter 15 of volume 1 read by Lars Rolander